Our scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be reading in chapter 15, beginning in verse 40, uh, through the end of the chapter. You can find that printed in your bulletin. Uh, This is actually our last uh, sermon. We've been doing a series in the Gospel of Mark. So this is wrapping up our series in Mark this morning. So it's obviously Easter, and I'm obviously going to talk about the resurrection. Um, But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about funeral planning, okay? Uh, Because, you know, to get the true resurrection, you kind of have to go through death. So I want to talk a little bit about funeral planning. And I want to read to you advice from a guy named Aaron Fleming. He was on NPR a while back. And this was his advice on planning your own funeral, all right? It's a little bit long, but hang with me. Here's who he says you want to speak at your funeral. You want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. And at one point you'd hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your broken-hearted spouse there in the pew and tell him that all the photons that ever bounced off your face... All the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair, hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off like children, their ways forever changed by you. And as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all the photons that bounced from you were gathered in the particle detectors that are her eyes, that those photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. And the physicist will remind the congregation of how much of all of our energy is given off as, as heat. There may be a few fanning themselves with their programs as he says it. And he will tell them that the warmth that flowed through you in life is still there, still part of all that we are, even as we who mourn continue the heat of our own lives. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know your energy is still around. According to the law of the conservation of energy, not a bit of you is is gone. You're just less orderly. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Now, what I want to ask, and he was was completely serious. Like, we kind of like, like he was, he was, he was serious about that. And what I want to ask this morning is, would you rather have me or the physicist do your funeral? Or to put it another way, do we live in a world where stones are rolled away because the dead are raised? Or do we live in a world in which once you die, you are sealed in a tomb that is never to be opened? And over time, your energy 
dissipates back into the energy or whatever that guy just said. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's our only comfort. What, what kind of universe do we really live in? Do we live in a universe in which stones are rolled away or not? That's what we're going to think about as we read the text this morning. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, And they were alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Pray with me. Uh, Father, would you meet with us now as, as we think about the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection? And would you impress that truth uh, not only on our minds, <clears throat> but on our hearts and our lips as well? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so here's where I want to start this morning. I want us to think about for a minute what it means if, if Aaron Fleming, the, the guy who said you should have a physicist do your funeral, if, what if he's right? What if, what if it is better to have a, a physicist do your funeral? What if we live in a universe in which no stone was rolled away and no stone will ever be rolled away because the dead are not raised? What kind of universe do we really live in if that's true? Uh, the philosopher Bertram Russell Uh, embraced a no-stones-rolled-away view of the world, and and this is the conclusion he came to. Man is the product of causes which no prevision of the end they were achieving, which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcomes of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, No intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, 
all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Bertrand Russell said, you might as well just embrace despair. Uh, We're here for no reason. Nothing you do will last. You won't last. No stones are getting rolled away. So embrace despair. Uh, Some of us might go down that route. Some of us might say uh, that I'm not really that depressed yet, so I'm not going to go down that route. But if it's really true that that this life is all there is, then the route I'm going to go is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. So I'm, you know, I'm just going to get as much as I can out of it while I'm here. Uh, it's kind of interesting somebody in the Bible tried that. If you go back to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, the, the author had more money than he knew what to do with. And he, he basically said that he pursued pleasure. Uh, he drank his fill of wine. He built houses. He built vineyards and gardens and parks. He bought and owned slaves. He filled his houses with possessions. He collected silver. He collected gold. He had singers and concubines available whenever he wanted them. And he winds up saying, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Uh, 2005, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, Tom Brady, famously said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. It's got to be more than this. And when he asked what that something more might be, he said, man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. But we all think we're going to be different, right? Yeah, we're not going to be like the guy in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, I'm not going to be like Tom Brady. When I become popular... When I go to college, when the right people like me, when I'm firmly established in my career, when I finally have that car I've wanted for so long, when we're finally able to finish paying off the house, when we take those vacations we've dreamed of, and then it becomes when I trade in that car, when I trade in that house, when I trade in that spouse for a better one and a better one and a better one, then at some point I'm finally going to be happy and my life is going to have meaning. Meaningless meaningless everything is meaningless uh, in the Johnny Cash's cover of the Nine Inch Nail song Hurt uh, which the video was filmed after his wife's death and, and shortly before he himself would die uh, he sings everybody you know goes away in the end and you can have it all my empire of dirt because what is it What is it at the end of the day? I heard Steve Brown say recently, if the atheists are right, then your tombstone has two dates on it. Uh, We'll have two two dates on it with a dash in the middle, and that dash basically stands for meaninglessness. It's it's a dash in the middle that signifies nothing. It's just, hey, there's a couple dates in this dash that you filled up for a while, but what does it really mean at the end of the day? See, if, if no stones are rolled away... You can embrace despair, you can pursue pleasure, you can be the next president, or you can wind up on death row 
But what does it really matter at the end of the day? You're just a dash between two dates. But what if Bertram Russell and Aaron Fleming are wrong? What if stones are rolled away? What if somebody really did die and come back to life? What if Easter really is true? What if this is really true? What if Jesus really did die dead, dead, and rise again on the third day? Doesn't that change everything? Uh, Mark tells us here that Jesus really was dead. There's a Roman centurion in verse 45 who had seen plenty of people die. He knew when they were dead. He certified that Jesus was actually dead. Joseph of Arimathea went and had Jesus taken down from the cross and prepared him for burial. And then there are women who come also and see the place where Jesus is placed in the grave. Mark is telling us Jesus did not simply kind of pass out for a little bit and then come to while he's in the tomb and push the stone open somehow. No, he was actually dead. And then we're told that on Sunday morning, women go to the tomb, a group of women go, and they find the stone rolled away, and they're told by an angel that Jesus has risen. They're astonished, and they're afraid, and at first they tell no one, but we know because we're here, and because the other gospel writers explain, they eventually found their courage, and they went and they spread the word that Jesus was risen. And it's interesting here, these women, that Mark names them. Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Salome. And he doesn't just name them once. He names them three times. And that's very interesting because, you know, Mark is sometimes frustrating to read because he condenses everything. And you feel sometimes like you're reading the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Gospels. And you're like, wait. You left out all this that Matthew said. He's very condensed. But he bothers to take the time to repeat these women's names three times in the space of about 15 or 20 verses. Now why in the world would he do that? Uh, What Mark is doing is he's giving you footnotes. He's giving his first first readers eyewitnesses. Say, look, you go and talk to them if you don't believe me. They saw the empty tomb. Go and talk to these women. They've seen the risen Christ. Now, it's interesting that he chooses women for this. Um, There was a Greek philosopher who lived about 80 years after the life of Jesus Christ. And he basically devoted his life to writing books to trying to disprove Christianity. And one of his main arguments against the resurrection was the fact that the first witnesses were women. And he, he, he basically said, you all know you can't believe anything women say. And the reason that he thought that carried so much weight was in that culture, the way women were treated was that you, your testimony was not even allowed in court in certain, in most cases, because you weren't considered reliable. Now, y'all don't get mad at me, get mad at Get mad at them a long time ago. Um, but, but that's kind of the world that they lived in. And so if Mark is making this up, knowing the way people around him think, why in the world would he over and over again write these women's names down? Like, here's the people you need to go ask. Why doesn't he have three, groups, you know, three men named over and over here? He does this because this is the people who actually saw him. They were the actual eyewitnesses, and he had no other choice but to write the names of the people who had actually been to the tomb. 
And then there's the disciples. The disciples who, if the resurrection didn't happen, went to their deaths for a story that they knew was just made up. Think about them the day before. They were terrified. They're running away. Peter is denying that he even knew Jesus. But then the next thing you know, he's boldly preaching that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is risen. And tradition tells us that Peter went on to be crucified upside down for his faith in Jesus Christ. They had no reasons to make this up. They had absolutely nothing to gain by saying he is risen. It does nothing for them unless it's true. And so they proclaimed it because it was. And so what if all this is true? Uh, What if what the angel says is true? Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See, if it isn't true, you you can just give up on the rest of the Bible too. If it isn't true, you can go back to your self-directed life, do really whatever you want to do. Living life on your own terms, pursuing pleasure or, or being depressed, it doesn't really matter. But be honest, whatever you choose is meaningless. It's meaningless. Who cares at the end of the day? It, joy pain, all those things are just meaningless emotions bouncing around our meaningless skulls for a few meaningless years until we check out of here. But if it is true, if Christ is risen, then that changes everything. Let me just mention a few things that change. Number one, what this means, if Christ is risen, it means that the world is rich with meaning. The world is rich with meaning. Wine matters. Good beer matters. Good food matters. Because it's just a foretaste of what you will eat and drink in the world to come. Celebration and laughter matters. Because that's just the beginning of a celebration that you will have for all eternity. Taking care of sick people matters. Because you're giving them a little glimpse of what it might be like one day to be totally and completely well and healed you're halting death of just for a little bit and giving them a taste of what could be for them to come justice matters think about this for a minute if you're for justice all right that's that's popular today to be for justice and to be for social justice and yet you think that the resurrection isn't true If you think that this world is all there is, then you need to understand that your very worldview is undercutting the concept of justice. Because why in the world should I sacrifice for the needs of others? Why in the world should I give a rip about the sick or the poor if this world is all there is? Why shouldn't I just do the best I can for myself and let them get on for themselves? See, if you don't believe that there's another world to come, you're undercutting the very idea of justice. But if the resurrection happened, uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. Christianity means good news for the whole world. Easter means in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, 
God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. This world matters. The resurrection is true. This world is not meaningless. This world matters. Secondly, the resurrection is true. It means that you can experience grace. It means that your sins can be forgiven. Verse 7, the angel says, Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus doesn't tell the angel to say, Go tell them, ha, you bunch of faithless losers. I showed you. Now I'm going to go find some new disciples because none of you believed I was going to do this anyway. No, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter who denied me over and over and over again that I want to see them. And you make sure Peter knows that. I want to see him. Look, I, I, don't, I don't know what you may have done. I don't know how you may feel like you have denied Jesus, how you might have turned your back on him. But the resurrection means that there's grace for sinners. There is grace for sinners. The resurrection means that Jesus' death wasn't just a random death on the cross on a hill somewhere. It's proof that God the Father found the sacrifice of His Son acceptable. Uh, Paul, at the end of Romans 4, tells us that faith faith in Jesus Christ will be counted as righteousness for who? For everyone who believes in Him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, but raised for our justification. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as an acceptable payment for, for sin. How do I know? The resurrection. The resurrection. And how can I experience the forgiveness that comes with that death and that resurrection? By believing in the one who died and was raised. By trusting in Christ. By putting your faith in Christ. Even if it's just a penny's worth of faith. Because it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the Savior that saves you. The resurrection means you can experience grace. Thirdly, the resurrection means you can know freedom. You can know freedom. Something changed with the disciples, didn't it? Pretty obviously. Something changed with the initial emotion of of the women at the tomb, pretty obviously. One moment everyone's afraid of death, and the next minute they're not. The resurrection can begin to free you from your fears. Begin to free you from your fears. Whether it's the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of losing your job, the fear of suffering, the fear of looking silly. The resurrection can free you from all of those fears. Why? Because it can free you from the greatest fear. It can free you from the fear of death itself. Uh, last Sunday morning, I, I mentioned in the prayer, uh, ISIS bombed several churches in Egypt. And this week I saw a woman interviewed, excuse me, And her husband had been the gatekeeper at a church that ISIS tried to bomb. And he said, I don't know the full story, but he stopped them and lost his life in the process. So he prevented what was going to happen at this church. And she was being interviewed. So you kind of have to see a split screen in your mind. She's sitting in a house with a journalist interviewing her. 
And the other side of the screen is like the anchor man back in the Egyptian News Network, whatever it's called, uh, news studio. And he's kind of watching her being interviewed. And this is what she says. I am not angry at the one who did this. I am telling him, may God forgive you. You are not in your right mind. My son, believe me, you are not in your right mind. Believe me, I am not angry. He is gone now, dead. And I ask the Lord to forgive them and let them try to think. Think, think. Believe me, if they think, they will know that we didn't do anything wrong to them. Think, is what you are doing, is it wrong or right? May God forgive you and we also forgive you. Believe me, I forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. Couldn't dreamed of. Believe me, I am proud of him. And I wish I was there with him. And so I say thank you. And you're like, you're kind of amazed looking at her and listening to her. But then what takes the cake of the whole thing is the, the guy in the studio, who I'm told is a Muslim, is his reaction to seeing this. And you can kind of see him as she's being interviewed. He's just thunderstruck by what she is saying. And finally, when it cuts back to him, this is what he kind of has to gather himself. Gather himself, and the first words out of his mouth are these: "Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Egyptian Christians, for hundreds of years, are bearing many atrocities and disasters. The Egyptian Christian deeply loves his country. Egyptian Christians bear everything for the sake of his nation. And oh, how great is the amount of forgiveness you have. If your enemy knew how much forgiveness you have for them, he would not believe it. If it was my father, I could never say this. These people have so much forgiveness. This is their faith and religious conviction. May God have mercy on Omnisum. He is a hero and a martyr. That's not fear. That's not fear. That's not even anger. Where does that come from? Where, where does the ability to rejoice in the faith of death come from? Where does the ability to forgive the people who killed, who murdered your husband come from? Where does the ability to leave a Muslim commentator dumbstruck at what you're saying come from? It comes from knowing that Jesus Christ went to the cross so that your sins might be forgiven. It comes from knowing that his mission was a success because he rose from the dead. And it comes from knowing that because his stone was rolled away, one day yours will be too. That's where that comes from. The resurrection means that this world matters. It's not meaningless. The resurrection means your sins can be forgiven. The resurrection means that you can have freedom from fear and that you can be free to forgive. And then the resurrection means one last thing. It means you have a mission to go and tell others that He is risen. Let's pray. Father, would you help us see the truth of this? Christ is risen, that Christ is risen indeed, and that changes everything. We pray it in His name. Amen.